Good to see everybody. Everybody still awake? Yeah. All right. I mean, we're going to talk about your sex life. So if you can't stay awake for that, we're going to be, I mean, that might say something. And we might lay hands on people at the end of this, uh, at the end of this time together. The great Puritan preacher William Googe in the 17th century said that uh, marital relations ought to be had with great regularity, with great joy and great celebration. I don't know what the altar call was like at the end of that service, but I bet it was lit. Uh, <laughs> so today we've talked about all kinds of things, theology, culture. I was able to be in a number of the sessions. And, um, you know, there's so many complexities about this particular subject. We could speak about sociological constraints, and we could talk about culture, theology, biblical interpretation. Many of those things have been addressed. My view is that the single most important thing we can do as the church of Jesus Christ on this particular issue is to actually embody the kind of life-giving sexuality that the world actually desires. That we would actually embody that, because the, the reality is, is that right now we have a little bit of a credibility issue. And that credibility issue isn't an information credibility, it's an experience credibility. And uh, maybe I can describe it this way. How many of y'all have had your students sell the world's best chocolate? Or you have sold the world's best chocolate? How many believe that it's a credibility issue that the church of Jesus Christ sends children out with boxes full of lies and vanquished dreams? <laughs> we all know it is not the world's best chocolate. If it was the world's best chocolate, it would not have a coupon on the back worth more than they paid for the chocolate. If it was the world's best chocolate, we would be lined up for hours first thing in the morning waiting for the chocolate. We know it is not the world's best chocolate, and yet it advertises that over and over again. The church I would like to contend with you is a little bit like that. We are telling this culture that it is worth the wait, it is worth monogamy, it is worth heterosexuality, it is worth it, and yet when we evaluate our own personal sexual abundance, it falls a little bit flat. And so we're selling a little bit of a product that we ourselves are not experiencing the benefit of that people look at us all I know is when you're having the experience that everybody wants everybody wants to do what you're doing to get the experience and I think we have to evaluate at that kind of level if we can so we're here in this last session and uh, what am I going to talk about well I'm going to talk about what Matt told me to talk about I think Unless it's really bad, in which case I am not talking about what Matt told me to talk about. Then it's all on me. But we're going to explore this issue of the heart of sexuality, and that's where we'll end today, talking to us as leaders about our own relationship to sexuality. And I think it's appropriate that we end there, both for ourselves, that we don't tell ourselves the story that we are all about what we create, but instead it is really about who we are and how that reproduces in the people around us. And so if you would, uh, if you've got your, your Bibles or your iPhones or you are old enough to remember who Jack Van Impey is and you've memorized the Bible, if you turn to uh, John chapter 4, and I'm going to try to find a sweet spot between, yes, I mean, speaking gospel truth to us, preaching if you like, but seeding that inside of some really important content that I hope you'll find hopefully new and interesting, but also transformative for you, marrying those two things together if we can. John chapter 4, and we'll be talking about this idea of the spiritual leader and the sexually abundant life. Now, I don't know if you've ever heard a sermon on sexual abundance. I've never preached one, so we'll see how that goes. Before we get into the Gospel of John, just to give you a little bit of background, uh, the Gospel of John, almost every story in the Gospel follows a four-part pattern. The first thing that you find in almost every story is darkness. That can be physical. You might find a, a, a tomb or a cave or it's nighttime. And in every situation, that is a metaphor. It's a metaphor for some kind of misunderstanding about who Jesus is and what he has come to accomplish. And Jesus is there. That's stage two. They experience light. And that is they have received a clarification about their misunderstanding by having a supernatural encounter with Jesus. Then that leads to stage three. If they receive that experience, life. 
and they experienced the life of Jesus, and we'll see like they left with great joy. They experienced abundant life. They had great peace. There was a real tangible result in their experience as people. And then step number four is now that they've received life, they join Jesus in the mission and they go share the good news of the gospel. That is an inviolable process in the gospel of John. There is darkness, there is light, light leads to life, and life leads to mission. You can never mess up that order. And I'll give you a couple of examples of how that works. In John chapter 3, we meet Nicodemus. Nicodemus meets Jesus when? At night, in the dark. And he has a misunderstanding about how the gospel works. He believes that, the God, that when Messiah comes, he's going to establish Israel as a political, physical entity, that then that is going to spread and fill the earth with a new earthly kingdom. And Jesus says, I'm going to tell you spiritual things, I, I'm going to drop some light on you. And Nicodemus says, I can't hack it. And so what happens? The process stops. He doesn't receive life, doesn't join in the mission. Fast forward to the end of the book of John, and we find Nicodemus again at night at a tomb. Two points of darkness, only this time he has recognized who the Messiah is. He has received life and joins in the mission of God. We can go to something like Peter at the end of the gospel, where it says that now he is out with six of his friends fishing, what time? At night, in the dark. Why? Because he has a misunderstanding or a confusion about Jesus. And it is, can Jesus restore somebody who has not followed through under persecution, and can he restore them and still use them? And as the morning begins to dawn, it says, and the light begins to come up, who does he see? Jesus on the shore. He comes. Jesus drops that truth on him, a prophetic word to him. He responds, comes to life, and what does Jesus say? Go feed my ship sheep. Join me in the mission. And we could go all the way throughout the Gospel of John. We could talk about the man born blind. He has that darkness. We could talk about the people, the disciples, when they're out on the boat at night and they are in the storm. Over and over and over again, we have that kind of a process. Does that make sense? Everything about that makes sense? So there you go. You've got a series on the Gospel of John that you can preach for the next 52 weeks if you like. You don't even need any, do anything with it other than that. Just keep going through it. By the end, they'll know it. So in that light, we come to John chapter 4, which is the longest conversation Jesus has in any of the Gospels. How many know that probably means maybe it's even more significant than some of the other material? And I'd like us to read it together, starting in verse 7. It says, a woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. And Jesus answered her, if you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. Now, don't get too spiritual real quick. Living water just means fresh water. To her ear, all she heard is, I would have given you fresher water than the stuff that's coming out of this well. That's all she heard at this point. And the woman said to him, sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us this well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. I love it that you get to drink from the same place as the cows. And Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give will never be thirsty again. What a claim. The water that I will give him or her will become in him or her a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And the woman said to him, sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come back here to draw this water. Now, I want to admit to you that I'm going to read this text and interpret this text through the lens of one specific contextualization, and that is that of the abundant sexual life. And I hope along the way that I can make the case that that is, I think, uh, neatly fits under the umbrella of what the author John means by this passage. But before we jump into wrangling the text itself, I want to see if I can give you a definition of the phrase, the sexually abundant life. So you can go ahead and pop that up there. What, what is that? I know some of us are like, I don't know what it is, but I'm pretty sure I want it. <laughs> you know, we just, we give an altar call. How many would like the sexually abundant life? Come forward. That'd be good. Yes, I see that hand. Okay. So for just a moment, I'd like us to think about the desire for a meaningful, satisfying sexual life as something normal and good. 
as something God designed, as something that God actually desires for you and desires for me. That when he thinks about his plan for our life, part of that plan for our life is that we would be in a relationship where we are loved in a way that is pleasurable, meaningful, nurturing, life-giving, caring, and actually sits somehow in the economy of God's grace to our lives. Our desire to feel sexually full and loved and satisfied is good. But it's really just one of a suite of desires, isn't it? it? You and I desire other things. We hunger, we thirst, we desire things like sunlight and beauty. We desire emotional intimacy. We desire all kinds of things. And none of those desires are bad. In fact, I would argue that rightly understood, they're not only not bad, but very good. So what makes the difference between one person's desire being good and one person's desire being bad? It is the way in which we desire them. Now, I want to use my piece of cheesecake as an example. Now, if you know me, I love cheesecake. Anybody else love cheesecake? Now, there are three potential ways that you could respond to the eating of this cheesecake. Actually, if you're lactose intolerant, there are four, but we won't go there. (laughs) Please, do not eat the cheesecake, okay? That's all I'm saying. Or if you're right before you leave, it'd be fine. But most humans have one of three responses And the way that you might respond to eating this piece of cheesecake or something else that you love is probably indicative of your perspective or your philosophy on how you engage your material experiences in general. And the first way that you might respond is as kind of a hedonist. And what I mean by that is, and it might be a person who's a Christian, It might be a person who's not a Christian, who is an agnostic or an atheist. The point isn't that. The point is is that when they eat the cheesecake, it is for one purpose. Because they want to experience the pleasure of eating the cheesecake. They either do not believe there is anything meaningful associated with the cheesecake, or they don't think about the value of the cheesecake. In other words, they don't eat that cheesecake in the economy of God's grace. Now, for some of us, maybe that's something to think about. But they don't wonder that, wow, God didn't have to give me taste buds. God didn't have to create this experience. God didn't have to make this subtle combination of sugars and fats blended together, release that amount of dopamine into my wonderful little system. He did not have to do that, right? But instead, he created all of this so that we would have an experience that would remind us of his goodness, of his care, of his nurture for his people. I mean, think about it. When you leave this place tonight, you can eat anything. You can stop at a Middle Eastern restaurant. You can stop at a Chinese restaurant. You can stop for pizza. You can go for ice cream. You can do whatever you want. Any of those are going to give you a different experience, many of them designed to give you pleasure and joy. God did that for us on purpose. He not only cares for our needs, but there is something more in our human experience. So for the hedonist, the cheesecake isn't transformed into a small piece of worship. And I don't mean to be overly spiritual. You don't need to order cheesecake and be like, he talked about sundup. You know, you don't have to do that. (laughs) If you want to, that's fine. I'm not saying you have to. But on the other hand, a hedonist just evaluates that moment as a commodity. It's either good cheesecake or it's bad cheesecake. Move on to the next human experience. Now, on the flip side of that, or I should say another aspect of that, we have the nihilist. How many have read the book of Ecclesiastes? Vanity, vanity, all is vanity. That is a nihilist, right? This person is cynical. Now, they're going to eat the cheesecake because they have desire. But they know full well that that cheesecake is not going to be the best cheesecake they ever ate, even if it is. They walk through life with a perspective of disappointment. Why? Because they used to be a hedonist. They depended on the pleasure and value they obtained from that piece of cheesecake, but over and over again, it was not the best. And therefore, now they are disappointed. And many people actually live in a cycle of nihilism and hedonism with their lives. They believe this thing is going to satisfy me, and it doesn't, so now I'm going to move on to this thing and this thing, never learning that there is a pattern occurring here. That everything disappoints because the minute we turn it into the thing, we desacralize it, we take it out of its sacred context, it actually ceases to be meaningful and valuable. When the reality is, is that when we eat the piece of cheesecake, now stick with me, I know this is silly, maybe you'll remember it, stick with me, that when we eat the cheesecake, the cheesecake is not the point. 
The God who made the cheesecake, in fact, I might dare say the cheesecakiness of God himself is the point of the cheesecake. That actually I can receive that thing, eat that thing, and at that moment I feel deeply satisfied because God cared for me. And so not only is my belly full, but my soul is satisfied by my experience of the God who would care enough to care for me in that way. Which brings us to the last position, which I think is the appropriate Christian position, which is a sacramentalist. And if you want a simple way to remember that, it just means that something sacred is meant by your human experiences. That there is a false dichotomy that there is a spiritual world and there is a material world. And the material world is bad and the spiritual world is good. That is not true. That is not biblical. The biblical perspective is, is that the material world is good and in understood in a sacred context is actually our bridge to more fully understanding and experiencing God. So something sacred is meant. So when that person has their cheesecake, it ceases to be just the cheesecake. And at that moment, they understand that they are, they are experiencing God's grace in their life. That somehow God designed that cows would give milk and sugar would grow on certain individual trees. And that someone would take all of that, mix it together with some lovely ricotta and cream cheese. They would bake that in the oven and the glory of God would be revealed to mankind. Someone, someone in the economy of God's grace did that. And the experience of that legitimately becomes an act of the reception of God's grace in our lives. Now, y'all are smart people. You know that I'm going to flip that over in a minute here and talk about sex. And some of you are like, I will take the cheesecake and the sex, to which I say, amen. <laughs> a hedonist evaluates the goodness of a sexual experience simply by the pleasure it produces. But that pleasure is vacuous. And we'll hint at some reasons why. And if we're going to be honest, I think this is where much of the church has been. That sex isn't theological or missional or devotional. It's simply the pleasure that God allows if you do it by his rules. It's really Christian baptized hedonism is the way it has been taught in many of our communities. The nihilist is cynical about any person's ability to truly satisfy them sexually, but pressed on by impulse and desire, they engage anyway. But the sacramentalist accepts and experiences that the intimacy, grace, and vulnerability, the giving and receiving of each other's naked bodies and imperfect selves to each other is actually an instance of the gospel played out in human drama. I hope we can appreciate that when we desire sex, what we actually desire is a set of chemicals that are released in our brain through a physical experience. That it isn't so much a breast or a set of genitalia we desire, but those are icons and locations of a brain experience that is the result of that physical contact. Are we all cool with that? So when I, when I desire intercourse with my wife, not only am I desiring her, but I'm desiring a particular experience that takes place in my mind. And the thing that we have to be careful of, because culture has wanted to make that as though that is a piece of cheesecake, is it a commodity? You consume it, and once you consume it, it is evaluated based on whether you have a particular experience or you don't. But those chemicals are actually deeply tied to meaningful human experiences that matter deeply. For instance, and I'll just give you an example, one of the primary chemicals that gets released when a person is involved in meaningful sexual intercourse is oxytocin. You've perhaps heard of it, oxycotton, the drug that people get hooked on, that is a, a sort of filler for oxytocin. And in oxytocin, the really wonderful thing about it is it increases dramatically. It is an intimacy drug. And when a person is having intercourse with someone that they know, that they love, that they value, that they trust, the oxytocin goes up. What that does is it actually makes people, am I allowed to say the word orgasm? Who's the official Nate says yes. Okay, Nate, Bowman, Brian says yes. Doug, can I get another? Uh, all in favor? Give me an aye. Thanks. Nobody's opposed. Good. Okay, so with increased oxytocin actually comes increased bodily contractions. The orgasms get stronger. But even more importantly, what it does is it creates a sense of belonging and peace and comfort and fullness and satisfaction in the mind and in the body postcoitally after sex. And what we simply mean by that is satisfying sex is intimate, meaningful, committed sex. 
On the other hand, when a person is engaged in sex as an object, they're just eating the cheesecake, whether it's pornography, whether it's a fling, whether it's treating your spouse as though they are your pornography. Salah. The oxytocin goes down, that soul isn't satisfied, and the body begins to go, I need more, I need something else, because I'm still not full. Your cheesecake did not fulfill me. Maybe I should try another restaurant. Maybe I need to get you to cook better. And all the pressure becomes on the other person or another person to become the thing that satisfies me. And all of that dissatisfaction comes from desituating sexuality from that sacred context. Because once we understand sexuality as an instance of the gospel, I mean, think about it. For those of us who are married, nobody will ever hurt you worse than your spouse. Right? Now, I don't know you people. Some of you I do. But if you come up to me afterwards, you know what? And you're like, you know what? I think you're a jerk. I'm just like, that's okay. I get to go home with her. See ya. Now if, now, if on the other hand, she walks up to me afterwards and she says, I think you're a jerk. How many now, I'm in the fetal position weeping like a baby at the front of the altar for the next three days. Like, I need Brian, Pastor Brian Henley to, like, drag me into the back office and anoint me with oil from Jerusalem just to make it through the night. <laughs> right? Why? Because she has greater access to my life. Nobody's ever going to hurt you. No one's ever going to be more known. You're never going to know anyone more. Don't tell me you can forgive people if you can't forgive your spouse, right? I mean, that's where, that's where it hurts. That's where it happens. And when people get together like that and you take one person and another person, go back to the Garden of Eden, nakedness is metaphorical for fully known, right? I am known. Here I am, right? I'm a 47-year-old man. I've got a little belly on me, losing a little bit of hair. I have hurt and harmed my wife over time. I am imperfect. I am flawed. I am all those things. She is perfect and pretty darn close. And when two people come together and they say in full intimacy, fully open eyes, say, I not only accept you as you are, but I know you fully. I know your 47-year-old body. I know your past. I know your history. I know who you are and who you are not. I know what you have done to me and what you have not done to me. I know what you aspire to be and where you have failed. And yet I still say fully and with full knowledge, you are worth being known. You are worth being loved. You are worth being desired. You are worth being committed to, celebrated, nurtured, loved. That is an instance of gospel. In fact, if we go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 11, the Lord's Supper, Jesus says, words of Paul, he says, that day the Lord was betrayed. He said, this is my body that I'm giving to you. That directly echoes 1 Corinthians 7 where it says, when you are married, your body is not your own. The giving of bodies to each other is an affirmation of the other person's worthiness to receive Christ. Paul in 1 Corinthians or in Ephesians chapter 5, it's the only time he ever says it. He says, and this is the great mystery, that a husband and wife should cleave to one another and the two should become one. The, the language is absolutely sexual. In fact, there are three sexual phrases in that passage. And he says, there is the great mystery. What is a mystery? Biblically, a mystery is a human activity that reveals the heart of God. The only thing ever called the great mystery because it is the most vulnerable, the most fully known, the most access, the most powerlessness that we will ever experience in life. And when a person in that context says, I accept you just as you are, and not only do I accept you, but I celebrate you, I desire you, I sing over you. You may, you may be less than the weight you want to be, more than the weight you want to be, better than you want to be, not as good as you want to be, smarter, not as smart, whatever it is, I celebrate your worthiness to be loved by God. And in that context, I offer you my body as down payment for the grace of God in your life. It's a beautiful activity. How many, say, how many would say that's, that's the kind of lovemaking we need in the church? That's what we need to be having, having going on. So what is the sexually abundant life? It is not negation. By that I mean it is not, I do not engage certain in certain behaviors. Like, I do not masturbate is not the sexually abundant life. I do not watch pornography is not the sexually abundant life. 
Please no one take the flip side of that <laughs> and run with it. He said I could masturbate. I did not say that. I don't think. Number two, it is not permitted pleasure. That is not the sexually abundant life. That's just eating the cheesecake. God said that I could have this pleasure. Now I'm married and I'm going to have it. That is not the sexually abundant life. That is baptized hedonism. That is us as the church saying, yeah, I can have the thing the way the world has it if I just do it the way God says. But the sexually abundant life, and you can pull up the definition, recognizes and participates in God's active grace whereby we understand sex and sexual desire as a sacramental experience that expresses God's desire and care to us and calls us to express God's desire and care to our spouse. The call is to make it evident to our spouse that they are safe and they are celebrated, not, not just when they are fully known, but especially when they are fully known. So a sexually abundant life is actually possible for single people. I know some of us are single here and you're just like, I'm going to hit the car. But as we recognize that our sexual desires and our, our desire for pleasure are actually desires for pleasure, for intimacy, for closeness, and that sexual activity and experience itself was never designed to be the thing that gave those. It is designed to be the thing that reminds us of the thing that gives those. It is the shadow, not the substance. It is the promise, not the fulfillment. And so the fulfillment and the substance are present even when the shadow and the promise are not. In fact, I will tell you this. Jeannie May always used to say loneliness is God's cry for intimacy. And sexual desire is the body's loneliness. Let that sink in. Sexual desire is your body's loneliness. And it is a call out to the God who fulfills the heart of men and women. In fact, I will tell you that until we can learn to be fulfilled in our emotional lives and our pleasure lives by God, the chance that we will use our spouse sexually when we do get married goes up dramatically. We have a generation, if we're not careful, of Christians who are waiting to unleash their pornified sexual appetite on their spouse in Christian marriage. True? The sexually abundant life is possible for marriages that are growing or challenged in their sexuality. Maybe there's trauma in the past. Maybe it's trying to work through how we have something more meaningful. That's okay because the beauty of it isn't predicated on a particular experience. It, the beauty of it is predicated on the mere fact that we would attempt to love one another well and remind each other of Jesus. So if things don't work perfectly, if everybody doesn't have what they imagine to be the perfect sexual experience, that's okay. The privilege is in the intimacy, the privilege is in the activity, the privilege is in the volition of another human to say, you are worthy of all of the affection that I have and I withhold nothing from you. And the sexually abundant life occurs, I think, especially when sexuality is meaningful and pleasurable and nurturing. Okay, so what on earth does that have to do with a woman at the well? Well, I have 18 minutes to tell you, which I fear I'm going to fail at miserably. Are we doing okay? Are we doing all right? Okay. All right, good. You don't, you don't have to say that. We had a guy in our church, this is just a side story. I get free 60 seconds for this. His name was Floyd. And the minute he started preaching, he fell asleep. But he had an internal clock which made him wake up when you were closing your sermon. Like he would just, you know how, anybody have that internal, not for preaching, please don't do that, but you know what I mean? You have that internal clock where you just wake up. Like it was something about the landing of a sermon that he could feel in his inner man and he would wake up. And you would close and you'd say something like, as I close, you go, keep on preaching, brother. I'm just like, you have slept through the whole sermon. <sighs> so now I have trust issues with people who say keep on preaching. That's all I'm saying. I'm not, it's not you, it's me. I just have trust issues. All right. So what does this have to do with a woman at the well? I'm going to try to move as quickly as I can, but let me frame this in terms of some observations, and we'll see how far, how far we get. Observation one from the woman at the well, our text reminds us that the abundant sexual life is actually possible. It's actually possible. I have deep, 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 deep concerns 
that the sexual failures, the lack of health, and the lack of truly sacred conversation about sexuality in my generation and the culture that's around us and emerging leaders, combined with everything that's happening in the world, has this next generation convinced that they can never reach a place where they have a meaningful, beautiful, safe, sacred, loving, nurturing relationship to their own body and that of their spouse. We recently conducted a survey of 18 to 25-year-olds who attend church two to three times a week, consider themselves highly committed Christians, and over 50% of those respondents said they have a low degree of confidence that they will ever be able to be sexually whole in action or in their thought life. My experience as a young ministry leader, I went to serve at a church and um, was serving on a team, and there was a, a person in that church that I respected very, very much. I mean, when you're a new, I got saved when I was 19 years old. Um, I got saved in an emergency room, and uh, it was really beautiful and sweet. The Lord said to me, JP, if you die, you're going to go to hell, and then didn't say anything else. So, sort of like, so anyway, what are you going to do? So I got saved, and, uh, and uh, I'd been a Christian maybe like 18 months, two years, something like that, and and there was a person there that I just highly, highly respected. You know that person when you're a young Christian, you're like, that's who I want to be like, that guy, that guy. I've been there uh, kind of formally for about three months, and uh, there was just a complete moral failure. And uh, I, if you know me, I, I'm not a big hooky, spooky, spiritual person. I rarely talk about the devil or demons or anything like that. I'm not sure I understand all of that stuff. I just figured the devil must be really busy because he seems to be speaking to everybody a lot. But in that moment, I, can, I think it is probably the only time in my entire Christian life where I felt like there was a legitimate agenda that was demonic in my life. And I could hear it almost audibly. If he can't make it, how can you? I mean, you're a 21-year-old guy, normal 21-year-old guy with real sexual desires, with, you know, just normal person. You're trying to be holy, trying to do the right thing, and he's got a wife, and he's got all this, and he has all this experience. If he can't make it, how can you? And I think if we're not careful, the next generation can look at us, and, and yes, we, we're a community of grace. We're communities of restoration. We're all of that. But how many know if everybody starts to implode, the next generation just starts to wonder, can't, like, is this even possible? Like, can I get to the point where I have something that's meaningful? This has a direct connection to our problem with the woman at the well and her darkness. Let me explain. In our text, we have the Samaritan woman in the presence of Jesus, and I think we can understand her up until verse 13, misunderstanding Jesus. Jesus is, is offering her living water, and in her language, all that means is I'm offering you fresh water. But then in verse 13, he turns a corner, and he's like, and oh, by the way, this fresh water, it's going to come from inside of you. And it's going to lead to eternal life, and it's going to begin now and bubble up into eternity. At some point, how many of you would have been like, I don't think we're talking about the same water. How many of us, at some point, we would have thought that? But her response, and this is phenomenal, she's like, sweet, I won't have to come to the well for water anymore. I don't know what she thinks. I don't know if she thinks she's going to wake up the next morning and be like, ee, 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 ee. Blah, 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 blah. thank you. I, I have no idea what she's thinking, but her response makes no sense whatsoever. She's in the presence of the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords. He has offered her eternal life. And let me qualify that. That isn't you die and go to heaven. That is, I'm offering you a different quality of life right now that will blossom into eternity. I'm promising you something that is a different way of experiencing your life that starts now. And that seed blooms, and when it goes in the ground at death, it bursts forth into eternal life in the end. He's offering that to her. Like she just found the genie's lamp, rubbed it. Robin Williams has come out. Poof, you get three wishes. What do you want? She's like, running water. Simple desires. All I want is running water. And the question the text wants us to ask is, why would she do that? Why would she do that? And the reason is simple. She actually doesn't have a theological vocabulary for what it would look like for God to do something that would actually heal and satisfy her in her interior life. Now, I don't know what you know about the Samaritans, but the Samaritans believed they were the true people of God. The kind of theological distinction for them was they believed that only the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible, were Scripture. They actually believed that Israel, based in Jerusalem, they were the false Israel and they were the true Israel. Now, if you go back and you read the first five books of the Bible, 
The blessing of God is defined very clearly. God's blessing is defined by us having a land, us being safe. God fights our battles for us. He provides water. He provides food. He provides offspring. That's how it's defined. And so when Jesus says, when she's like, he's the guy, he's the Messiah, her mind naturally goes to, he's going to do something on the exterior for Samaria that's going to make me happy on the interior. He's going to take care of my external situation and that's going to fix me in here. She doesn't have a theological vocabulary for God saying, I don't care what's going on on the outside of your life. I'm going to come right down on the inside and I'm going to make you whole in whatever context you live in. She doesn't have that vocabulary. This is why Jesus is being a little bit kind of spiritually extra here. I don't know if you pick up on it, but he's like, hey, uh, can you get me some water? And she's like, why are you asking me for water? He's like, I'm not asking you for water. You're asking me for water. I've already got water. I got spirit water, baby. (laughs) It's kind of weird. And then if you follow it up in the end of the chapter, the disciples come back from getting food and they're like, hey, Jesus, we brought burgers. You want one? He's like, nah, I got spirit burgers. What is that? What he's doing is he's trying to demonstrate that what is invisible and spiritual is not less real than what is physical. It is more real. It is the thing that really matters. So her problem is not exterior. Her problem is interior. And our sexual problem is not exterior. Our sexual problem is interior. My problem is I don't have a spouse. That's not my problem. My problem is not that my spouse will not perform. That is not my problem. My problem is what is going on in here. That is my problem. So God isn't going to magically fix everything so that I have the dream sex life. God is going to fix what's going on in here so that I appreciate sex as this beautiful, sacred gift that he has given. Does that make sense? If I can say it this way, the Samaritan woman believed that Jesus was good. She just didn't know or believe that he was good at hard things, at interior things. You remember the prophet Isaiah's question, is the arm of the Lord shortened that he cannot save? I love it. It's like the T-Rex text. Is God like this? And her answer is yes. God's good at the outside stuff, but his arm is not long enough to reach deep inside of me and actually fix me. Like, change me. And I have a deep concern, deep concern that we believe Jesus is good enough to get people heaven, but I'm not sure that we believe that he's good enough to put heaven into them. That he's maybe not good enough to actually make it so that I have a healthy relationship to my own body and to other people's bodies, that he can do that kind of transformative work. And that internal thing could be addiction, it could be a flawed view of sexuality that needs to be reordered, it could be trauma, it could be a negative view of sexuality caused by your own personal experience, it could be hedonism, it could be wounds inflicted on us by our spouses or a boyfriend or girlfriend's mistreatment of us. But we need to believe that Jesus is actually capable of leading us to the abundant sexual life. Friends, he's, he's good at hard things. He can do hard things. Observation two, honest conversations will be necessary for us to experience abundant life. Verse 16, Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. And the woman answered him, I don't have a husband. Awkward. (laughs) Jesus said to her, you're right. When you say, I have no husband, you've had five. And the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. Now, this often gets preached as though she's immoral. And that is possible, but not likely. In reality, what probably has happened is that she is doing exactly what Samaritan culture dictates. Samaritan culture is like Israel. Remember Israel? They're forbidden from marrying anyone who's outside their culture. Remember that, right? If you go take foreign wives, you're in big trouble with God. Only they're a smaller community. And so there is a high degree of impulse to preserve patriarchal lines inside of Samaria. That is, important family lines descending from an important male figure. And so what would often happen is if the wife of a patriarch died, they would, take a, they would take a childbearing age wife who would be much younger than them. And so it's entirely possible that the woman of Samaria could be 20-some years old and have been married the first time to somebody who was 70 or 80 or something like that. And then what would happen is the first husband would die, and then they would marry the brother of that husband and the brother of that husband. In reality, what probably happened is she is aged out of all five brothers that were an important family. And at some point, somebody said, this woman kills everybody she marries. I'm not marrying that woman. 
How many know after five husbands, you kill them, you got a reputation? That's all I'm saying. Like people, they're like, I'm pretty sure it was natural death, but it was five. You know, they're just, they're just not sure. And so someone graciously offers to take her in. There is nothing in the text that says that she is sleeping with a man that she lives with. Nothing in the text. And so the reality is, is that she's probably a woman who has been deeply disappointed by life. That she has married men who are far past their prime in every way. Emotionally, they're past their prime in terms of sexuality. They're past their prime in terms of being that kind of dynamic relationship that a young woman would look for. But she has done the thing that the culture had asked her to do. And life has left her destroyed and damaged and in a very, very difficult situation. Her emotional needs are really, really profound. And so when Jesus says to her, go get your husband, what he's really doing is he's saying, you're not understanding the quality of life I'm able to bring to you. And so what I'm asking you to do is I want you, the reason I'm bringing up this painful thing is to illustrate for you the kind of life I'm able to bring. I'm not just able to cure your external thirst and weariness I'm able to help your profound brokenness and disappointment. So that go get your husband, Jesus knew it would hurt, but it was an act of care to expose to her the level of miracle that he was able to work in her life. I don't know about you, but I love that he doesn't send her back to preach before he's made her well. You know that Jesus isn't into using people, right? Jesus isn't using us to accomplish his ministry. Bringing you and I to life is his ministry. You and I are not first and foremost a leader, a coach, a youth pastor, a professional, a communicator, a motivator, a pastor, a preacher, a connector, or whatever. We are people. And we are loved just as much as the people God has called us to reach. His desires for us, his desire for our wholeness and our healing and our restoration, I would say, if anything, might be greater than those he's wanting to reach because his ability to reach them is predicated on our being made well, on our being made whole. I think we can all be like her a little bit, though, hedging an honest conversation for a quick fix, right? We say to ourselves, well, you know, I have a problem and maybe I can get so-and-so to slap their hands on me, speak in tongues, and boom, all of it's done. And God does that. How many know he doesn't do that all the time? You know why? Because he doesn't want us shallow, complacent, and lazy. He wants us to actually learn how to have relationship with him, transformative relationship. I remember um, my wife and I had been pastoring a, a church, or we had actually been a youth pastor. She was children's pastor. That's how we met, by the way. Uh, we just figured we probably need to collaborate. You know, youth pastor and children's pastor should work together after all. So we got married and made some children and the ministry grew and that's how that works. And um, we had left that position and I know y'all are more spiritual than me, um, but I had this moment where, you ever have a moment where God's just not talking to you? Anybody, anybody, just, just me? Please say yes to make me feel better. Okay, just lie, it's fine. And we were like, God, what are we going to do next? And just crickets. And I'm not talking like crickets for a day or a week. I'm talking like months of crickets. And not only is not God, God is not talking to us about where we're supposed to go. He's not talking to me about anything. Just nothing. I'm just like, God, should I brush my teeth? Nothing. So I didn't. <laughs> I'm just kidding. That's not true. And um, so we're just, I'm, I'm getting desperate. I'm a fairly young believer. I don't come from a ministry family. I don't know any of that stuff. So I'm just like, what am I going to do? I'm going to beg. That's what I'm going to do. So I'm just like, God, you know, I'm getting desperate. I'm whining. I'm crying to God. I know y'all are more spiritual than that. I'm fasting, you know, trying to manipulate God. And uh, get him to tell me what he wants me to do with my life. Nothing, nothing, nothing. Comes to district council. Comes to district council. And uh, show up there. And our brother Bill Leach, who used to be the district superintendent, he was preaching. And I'm like, look. I gotta have, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get as close to Bill Leach as I can because if God's not talking to him, we're all hosed. So I'm just believing God's going to give him a word for me. And so he gets done preaching. I have no idea what the message was. I responded to the altar call. I have no idea what I admitted to by doing that. I have no idea. I just came forward. And true story, he's pacing back and forth praying with people. I'm on the front row. I'm knelt down praying. And as he moved that way, I would shimmy. 
Because when he got a word from the Lord, I wanted to be close enough that he didn't have any reason not to hunt me down and give it to me, right? So I'm praying, and I'm getting more and more pathetic. I'm starting out like, oh, God, lead me. By the time we get like 10 minutes in, I'm like, oh, God. You know, I'm banging the chair, doing everything. It's ridiculous. Literally everybody left the sanctuary but me and Bill Leach. So I'm up in the front like some kind of, you know, goat having a seizure, praying on the front thing. He's pacing. I have no idea. I need to ask him, like, what were you thinking in that moment? Finally, I can feel him walking up to me. I'm like, this is it. This is the moment. He's walking up to me. This is the moment I'm going to get a word from the Lord. He puts his hand on my shoulder and he goes, bless him, Lord. And he bolted. That's it. That's it. But here's the problem. I'm there praying, everybody's left, and here's what the Lord said to me. JP, more concerned, I'm more concerned about making you whole than I am giving you a role. And I want to know why your relationship with me is so small that one moment of silence pushes you into complete collapse. Why don't we talk about that? I think we all want the quick fix. But sometimes we're going to have to get into the presence of Jesus and hear Jesus say, why don't you go get your husband? I, I, I know you got hurt. But why don't you go get your husband? Bring your deepest point of pain right into my presence. I, I know that you've had that sexual addiction for a long, long time. Why don't you go get your husband and bring him right here to my feet? I want us to be timely, so I will give you my final three observations very, very quickly and just kind of bullet point. Are we doing okay? Okay, good. I got a, I got a two thumbs up from Carrie Waldy. You got a hug coming your way. Love you, man. Observation three, our sexual abundance is critical to the faith of the next generation as an example of what Jesus can do. We, for many years, I think, have used the eternity gambit as our primary means of getting people to Christ. Now, I just told you how I got saved. I'm not opposed to it. But John doesn't think about discipleship and believing in those particular ways. He connects mission and ministry all the way back to the creation account, to Eden, to new creation, and to building a new Eden, a new community with eternal life that begins now. And I think this is much more how this generation thinks. If you are old like me, I'm 47. That's the same age as you, right, Kerry? Yeah, he's 47. 47. Oh, he's 48. He just turned 48. <laughs> um, our generation tended to think, prove to me that it's true, and I will make it work. This generation says, show me how it works, and I'll believe it's true. And in that context, and by the way, that's not a bad way of thinking. Both are valid lines of inquiry. But this generation, I think, is looking at the church, and they're looking at you and I, and they're saying, you're telling me about abundant life. You're telling me about the power of the gospel of Jesus. You're telling me about all of that. Now let me see it. Let me, let me believe it. Give me enough testimony in your life that I might be able to believe for my life that Jesus is capable of doing something extraordinary. Because if you only knew what I have been up to, if you only knew where I have been, and I think this will happen most clearly in the point of a culture's deepest challenges. Just like the woman at the well will look back at the Pentateuch and, and define what God is capable of that way, right? She defined what God could do based on what she saw in her heritage. The next generation will define what Jesus is capable of by the work of grace they see in your and my life. They will not believe that Jesus is capable of any more than he has done for you and me. That's where they will get their measuring stick from. And the reality is, I think if Jesus is not good at making us the kinds of people who can't keep from harming one another on a regular basis in this deep, beautiful, intimate thing we call human sexuality, they have a right to question our claims to abundant life. I mean, if the abundant life doesn't fix marriages, doesn't fix sexuality, doesn't fix emotional health, what on earth does it fix? 
get you to heaven, that is not the message of the gospel. Getting to heaven is the fruit of a life that has been impacted with the gospel, not the goal of the gospel. It's not the long-term, it's the long-term impact of it. So when we look at the next generation and we make demands in the name of Jesus and we say wait and we say be monogamous and we say commitment, they're going to look at our lives and say, is it worth it? They're going to want to know. I'm not a triumphalist. I know that being a Christian isn't all sunshine and rainbows, but I, and I know that evangelism is just telling one beggar where you found bread, right? It's just one beggar telling another beggar where you found bread. But how many know if the beggar telling me where he found bread doesn't have a little more meat on his bones, I got a trust issue. If I go to the donut shop and the dude who's running it skinny, I'm out. <laughs> I'm out, right? I want to see that you've been tasting the wares and that it's putting a little bit of life into you. And the world and the next generation have the right to look at their leaders and say, I want to see a little more on those bones. I want to see a little sparkle in that eye. I want to see what Jesus has done for you. They have that right, and I think we should demand that of ourselves. Quick stats, points four and five. In the survey that we recently conducted of young adults, and again, these are the cream of the crop, right? They're the ones who stayed. They're the ones who are still in our ministries. They're the ones who are volunteering and leading. You may even be here today. 47% of them feel regularly ashamed of their sexual behavior and wonder if sexual health will ever be possible. 43% of these wonderful folks have considered leaving the faith or not pursuing something they believe God has called them to because they do not believe they can live that out faithfully. Our ministry crisis of qualified leaders in the church is directly related to our sexual crisis. More than 50% wonder whether anyone could ever truly love them because of what they've done. More than 50% often feel that God cannot love them because of what they have done. Friends, if we don't start experiencing life, a life so full of the love of Jesus that it impacts the way that we love one another in general and the way that we experience sexuality specifically, we're going to continue to have a harvest that goes right in our pocket and drops to the floor because they can't see the power and transformative hope of the gospel in the community they're a part of. Number four, our sexual abundance is critical to the faith of the next generation genetically. Uh, this is probably core value for me. And it's just simply this. You cannot violate the law of the seed. You will reproduce who you are 100% of the time. Now, you can preach better than you live for a while, but the genetics will show. Sooner or later, that hollow core will implode on itself, and it'll take you and the ministry that you have built with it. That's why we've challenged our team. I've got together with our staff and I said, I want 30 minutes a day from every staff member in the presence of Jesus, not praying for what you need, not praying for what you lead, just you and Jesus being loved by him, being made whole. We cannot do this without it. We need to be a prophetic model of the life that Jesus can give. And I don't mean not wearing this and wearing that. I'm talking about an internal sense of being so loved that I got nothing to prove and nothing to lose because I'm good. Jesus has made me whole. We won't spend time there, but again, I just love that Jesus doesn't send her out knowing that she's going to reproduce dysfunction. He says, I got to make you whole. Then I can send you back and bring people to me. And number five, and I'll end here. The sexually abundant life comes through a true personal relationship with Jesus that brings wholeness and meaning to our experiences. I think it, for some it might be a strange claim to say that, that our sexual desires will be fulfilled by Jesus. I think some people might ruffle at that. And that's okay. I think at the beginning of this, Pastor Matt said, you might not agree, or maybe it's time to wrestle, what all those kind of things. I think it was me, it's Pastor Brian. But remember we said in the beginning that when we desire sexuality, what we don't desire is a set of breasts and a set of genitals. What we desire is a particular set of chemicals that have ties to emotional needs that we have. That's what we desire. Sexuality just happens to be the mechanism through which we have that experience. And so when we talk about desiring closeness, knownness, acceptance, when we talk about desiring a sense of safety, a sense of care, the pleasure of being known and loved unconditionally, 
Remember, sexuality is not the thing. It is the shadow. Sexuality is not the thing. It is the promise. He is. He is all that we want. And that's not a, that's not a game of bait and switch or bait and wait. That is true. I am married to a wonderful, wonderful woman. And you know what? Anytime I ask her to be God for me, she will fail. Her job is not making me happy. Her job is not making me whole. Her job isn't taking care of my lust problem. That's not her job. Her job between her and Jesus is to be the best representation of Jesus she can so that I can experience grace. And that's my job to her. End of story. So how do we do that? I've made a kind of uh, pact with the Lord, and I'll end here. That for the foreseeable future, I'm just really not going to talk about anything without landing in this same space. And that is that I believe that we have an absolute crisis in the church. And that crisis is, is that we have a generation of people who do not know how to experience the love of God in their lives on a regular basis. That we know how to pray for stuff. We know how to pray for miracles. We know how to pray in tongues. We know how to prophesy. We know how to go to conferences. We know how to show up for worship. We know how to do all that kind of stuff. But isn't it crazy? Think about it. I want you to be honest with yourself. Take all of your spiritual activity, sermon preparation, loving on students, doing actual stuff at church, you know, leading a service, going to a service, going to a conference. Take all of that. And I think the average Christian would say that their prayer life for a year takes up less time than all the rest of their Christian activity for a month. When the real source of life is you and I in the presence of Jesus. Jesus looks at her, and it's wonderful. She says, I perceive, sir, that you're a prophet. Remember that? Which is a funny thing to say. He's like, I he just read her mail. She's like, you're a prophet. She is, she's on it. <laughs> and Jesus very quickly shifts the language three times away from himself as prophet and to the Father. You know why? Because she's looking for that quick fix. The prophet will give me a word and I'll be better. Looking for a miracle, looking for a way out. And she goes, no, there's only one solution to this, I'm afraid. And that is that you're going to have to get into the presence of, of the Father. And by the Spirit, you're going to have to spend time with him. Having honest conversations, actually receiving the love of the Spirit. I'm going to pray for us in just a second. If we have any Q&A, we can do that. But I want to, can you pop up that next slide? I've got the last slide there. I've got a series of uh, resources for you, and these are for you. These are for you. How, how many would say, uh, this is okay, this is gonna be the best altar call you ever respond to. We're not gonna lay hands on anybody though. How many would say, I will take an abundant sexual life from the Lord? If the Lord wants to give me that, just me, me and Cole and Jessica. All right, sweet. Well, we're gonna be the happiest people in this room. <laughs> so that's good. These will help you. Christopher West's book, Our Bodies Tell God's Story, is actually a popularization, kind of a TED Talk version of John Paul's work on human sexuality. It will absolutely help you begin to theologize and sacralize yourself as a sexual person and for those of us who are married in our sexual experience, where we can begin to stop compartmentalizing our sexuality as a separate category of our spirituality and actually begin to experience our sexual lives in the presence of God. It's a beautiful, beautiful book. I highly encourage it. Um, yeah, it's, it's just excellent. I, the only thing I will tell you, Christopher West, uh, the, the work is Catholic. And I don't know if you all know this, but the most sexually satisfied people on the, in America, evangelical women who are monogamous and committed and Roman Catholic men. You know why? This book. Because Roman Catholic theology demands that men think about more than an orgasm. That they actually experience sexuality in a sacred context and humanize the experience and sacralize the experience. It's a beautiful work. Paul F. Dokomoff, The Sacrament of Love, is an Orthodox author. And again, the reason you say, well, why do we have a Catholic and an Orthodox author? Because most of Western Christianity has bought into this idea that the material is bad and the spiritual is good. 
and we're finally just now over the last 50 years or so starting to reintegrate those things together, okay? That's an excellent book. I would read it second. If you really want a deep dive, John Paul II's Man and Woman, He Created Them, A Theology of the Body. A lot of people don't realize Pope John Paul had, did his PhD in uh, the human body and sexual experience as connected to the revelation of God. That was his PhD work. And this is the fruit of that work in a series of Wednesday lectures to the faithful delivered at the Vatican. Also, I'll give you one last resource on there. It's up there. It's only in beta form right now, but you can kind of bookmark that at northpointgr.org resources dash sexuality. We're building an annotated bibliography of academic resources, theological resources related to everything that involves sexuality, everything from personal sexuality, pornography, impact of pornography, masturbation, biblical exegesis, interpretation, gender, homosexuality, so on and so forth. Those are all annotated there, so you can see at a glance, hey, I want the most theological thing because I'm trying to do textual work. They're annotated right there for you. Or no, I'm just looking for something that's personal for me, or I've really got to do something quick and need something that's an easy in and out. All of that is annotated right there for you. And so I encourage you to bookmark that. We actually have it on the schedule to add resources to that weekly uh, for the foreseeable future. So we're hoping to make that a, an important database for you, okay? Is there anything else that you